Good. Well, friends, do please keep the Bible open and uh, you might want to have the outline on the inside of the white bulletin also open just to give you uh, some guidance as to where we're going in the next few moments. Well, let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, you teach us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. So may your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us, not only to the hearing, but also to the living of your glorious truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Handel's Messiah is, um, is often performed at Christmas. And uh, whatever your musical tastes, with a, a full choir and a full orchestra, a performance of the Messiah is an unforgettable experience. Uh, perhaps the most famous part of the work is the Hallelujah Chorus, and it contains the words at the end of verse 15 in our passage this morning. So let me read them for us again as we begin. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now here comes the phrase from the Hallelujah Chorus. And he will reign forever and ever. Now Handel's Messiah is actually a helpful way into our passage today. Now why is that? Well, the words were not actually written by Handel himself. Um, they were written by a man called Charles Jennings in 1741. Jennings was a faithful, uh, biblically-minded Christian, and he was also a tremendous scholar. He was particularly concerned about a movement, um, a theology that was extremely popular at the time. Uh, it was a belief called deism, and uh, the big idea in deism was that God created the universe, but then he abandoned it and left it to run its course. And both inside and outside the church, people were saying that from creation onwards, God had nothing to do with human history. But uh, as a biblical Christian, uh, Jennings believed the opposite. He believed the Bible's message that Jesus is the centre, the pivot of human history. That God has crashed into the world in the person of his son in order to rescue us. And because of Christ, a fundamental change has taken place that affects absolutely everybody. Now Charles Jennings wanted to get that message out into the world and uh, he reasoned that the best way to do that was not by writing a theological paper, praise God, and instead he decided to set the message to music. So what he did was he set about compiling uh, a group of Bible passages that summarise God's plan, the Gospel, and uh, then having collected those Bible texts, he sent them off to, to George, his good friend George, and asked if George would set them to music. Well, Handel read those scriptures. He was absolutely blown away by what he read 
and he began work immediately and completed the composition of the entire work in just 24 days, which was a pretty astonishingly short time. Now, it is 280 years since Handel's work was completed. And uh, over the years, literally millions of people around the world have heard the good news of Jesus in performances, live performances, or in recordings of this masterpiece. Um, And they've heard how God really is in charge of human history. And I think, therefore, with the, the perspective of history, we can see that Charles Jennings was both a creative and highly effective evangelist. And God has blessed his work in ways he couldn't possibly have imagined at the time. Now, one historian says that as uh, Handel finished the musical score for the Hallelujah Chorus, that a servant came into the room where he was working. Handel was so overwhelmed by what he was experiencing through the words and through the music that he said to his servant, I saw all of heaven opened and the great God himself. Now, friends, that is what you and I are seeing in our passage this morning. God is opening heaven to us. And we're seeing things here that simply cannot be understood by raw human intellect. So, uh, when verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, that has got nothing whatever to do with conventional wisdom. Relatively few people in Cape Town really believe that Jesus will reign over creation forever. Relatively few people in Cape Town really believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Jesus and that he actually rules today in a way that we cannot see with our eyes. And the reason that many people find this so hard to believe is because evil so often seems to have the upper hand. Now I want us to be very clear as we begin that that is not a new problem. It's always been like that. In fact, it's the context of our passage this morning. Last week, we saw in chapters 10 and 11 that John received a message from God for the church. The message is that throughout the church age, that is, throughout the period between the first and second coming of Christ, the church will proclaim the good news of Jesus with tremendous divine power and authority. People will get converted. But at the same time, God said, the church is going to go through tough times. There will be times when it suffers severe persecution. There will be times when it compromises with the culture. There will be times when the church appears to be completely and utterly irrelevant. But God will always revive it. And in the end he will vindicate it before the eyes of the world. Now, that was last week. Listen to the tape if you missed the message. 
And that is the context in which we get this marvellous announcement in verse 15 about the kingdom of God. And friends, can I say that if our witnessing is going to be remotely effective this Christmas, it is absolutely vital that we understand what this announcement means and what it does not mean. So let's start with this. What do we mean by the kingdom? Well, let's start by asking, well, what is the kingdom of the world? Because verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of the world is the way that the world works today. The kingdom of the world is whatever rules and has power in this world. So, First uh, John, first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 16, defines the world as the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. That's what shapes and defines and reigns in the world today. It's, you see that every day in social media. Because the world is in rebellion against God. It is not how God created things. But it's how things are in a fallen world. But it's not how they're supposed to be. Now the good news of verse 15, have a look at it again, is that one day the way things are will be the way things are supposed to be. Which is another way of saying that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of of God and of his Christ. Now if we're clear about that, let's consider what we, what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. Now today, uh, most Christians are agreed that the kingdom of God is a central theme in the New Testament and that it is the main theme of the Gospels. But Christians can't always agree about what the kingdom actually means. There are three main views about it. Together, they give us a really good definition of the kingdom. But if you separate them, if you don't keep them together, you end up with a sort of distorted, unbalanced picture of the kingdom of God. So what are they? Number one, the first view of the kingdom is the ethical view. And according to this view, the kingdom is about living rightly. It's about ethics. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, forgive those who sin against you, don't be judgmental, give to the poor, don't commit adultery, welcome the outsider. Uh, that is the view of the kingdom held by many liberal scholars today and many of the leaders in what is called the emerging church. They say that the kingdom of God means living out the shalom of God, the peace of God on earth. And it's not an incorrect view of the kingdom, but it is not complete. That the kingdom of God does mean living in a certain way and enjoying the peace and harmony and justice that only Christ can bring, but that is not all the kingdom brings. If the kingdom 
is only a message about ethics, there's no good news. Because the kingdom is not coming perfectly in this present age and you and I cannot perfectly live out the Sermon on the Mount. So the kingdom is ethics, but it's more than ethics. Number two. The second view of the kingdom is the experiential view. Now according to this view, the the kingdom is all about what's in your heart. Uh, To receive the kingdom of God, you must be like a little child, Mark 10, 15. I guess this is what many people refer to as the pietistic view of the kingdom. Uh, It's all about being humble, relying on God, have an inner experience, get in touch with your spiritual side. Now again, it's not entirely incorrect. The kingdom of God is about changed hearts and about humility and experiencing the love of Jesus. But that's not all it is. If the kingdom is all about an experience, there's no Jesus. The kingdom is not just an experience or even just an experience of Jesus. It's also a message about who he is and what he's done and what he demands. And that brings us to the third view, number three, which is, one long word, the only long word in the sermon, the eschatological view. Eschatological simply means the last things. And according to this view, the kingdom of God brings in the reign of God and it brings us out of this present evil age and into the age to come. So the kingdom means the king has come to destroy his enemies and save his people. Uh, The goats will be separated from the sheep. Those who believe in Jesus will be saved. Those who reject him stand condemned already. And all of that is what we might call the conservative evangelical view. And it's right. And as much as liberal scholars don't like it, the kingdom is about who's in and who's out. It's about who submits to the king and who doesn't. But again, that's not all that the kingdom is about. It is also about heart transformation and living out righteousness and justice. So so the short way of describing the kingdom is to call it the reign and the rule of God. I guess that the long way to say that is that the kingdom is about God having sway over our society, uh, over our hearts, and over our allegiances. So when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, there will be no more lawlessness, no more rebellion, no more crime, no more brokenness, no more injustice, no more unrighteousness. In other words, the way that God wants things to be will be the way that things are. Now that is what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom. And if we've got that reasonably clear in our minds, we then need to move on and ask the second question, which is, well, has the kingdom come? Uh, I mean, is the kingdom present or is it future? Is it here 
or are we still waiting for it? And the answer is yes. The kingdom of God is present and future. It's already here and it has not yet arrived. Now friends, until you understand this, uh, what scholars call the, the already and the not yet of the kingdom, you won't understand the Gospels or Revelation or most of the New Testament. Let me read two verses that illustrate the tension. Matthew 4, verse 17, says this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. In other words, with the coming of Jesus Christ, and especially in his death and resurrection, the kingdom has come. That's why Jesus can say the kingdom is near. But here's the second verse, and it's one that's immediately familiar to all of you. Matthew 6, verse 10, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, Pray, your kingdom come. In other words, the kingdom hasn't yet arrived. So, so we pray for it to come and break in fully and completely. You see, there's a tension, isn't there, between those two. How are we to resolve it? I want you to use your imagination and try and picture two different diagrams in your mind. I know it would be easier if we could draw them, but we can't. Please use your imagination. That The first picture represents the Jewish mindset in the first century. They were saying this. They were saying that you have two ages, this age and the age to come. Uh, this age is present and evil, and the age to come in the future, where the Messiah reigns and his enemies are destroyed and there is peace and righteousness, that age is yet to come. And they saw this present age going in a straight line. Messiah arrives and then a new age or a new era begins which is the age to come. The problem was that Jesus didn't explain things like that which is why they didn't like him. For Jesus and for the rest of the New Testament the two ages work like this. You have this age and then overlapping it is the age to come. And when Jesus came, when Messiah came, he announced the breaking in of the age to come, which was beginning to be realised in principle through his miracles and his power. And this breaking in of the age to come is called the kingdom of God. And so, you see, with the coming of Christ and especially his death and his resurrection, this present evil age has become, in principle, the age to come. But it's not a clean break. It's not a clean break between the one and the other. They overlap so that this present age is growing into what it already is in principle. Let me give you an illustration to make the point. Uh, it's not perfect, so please don't press it too far. But it's rather like what happens in a general election 
and there's a change of government. I've been thinking about that this week, I wonder why. Now what happens in a general election is this. On election day, the votes are counted and the new leader is announced. But his actual rule, his term of office, doesn't actually begin until he's sworn in at a special inauguration ceremony several weeks later. The reality is he's won. His opponent has been defeated. It's in all the papers. It's all over the internet. The whole country is preparing for the transition. The winner starts forming his cabinet, starts putting together his administration. The new era has begun, but on the other hand, it hasn't. And in exactly the same way, spiritually speaking, we are living between the time of the election and the inauguration ceremony. Christ has defeated Satan and death. It is absolutely right to talk about Christ as king. The news is all over the place. And you and I are supposed to make sure that everybody hears the news. But opposition to the king is still strong and in some senses getting stronger. So if you like, Jesus is the already but not yet king. Are you with me? And this is how it's going to be until he returns and his enemies are thoroughly defeated and his reign is completely and finally unopposed. Now I need to say to you that this this already and not yet picture of the kingdom is vitally important to understand because it's not only how the kingdom works it's also how your salvation works because what's true on the macro level is true also on the micro level of your life and mine. You see, your life is not a straight line with a clean break between the old man and the new man, between the old non-Christian you and the new Christian you. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's not that one minute Simon is unconverted, uh, proud, selfish, and then boom, he becomes a Christian, and now I'm in Christ and I'm totally holy. It is not like that. What happens is that you have your life outside of Christ. Then you are converted, regenerated, justified, adopted, all of those things, and now you are, hear this word, positionally in Christ. You are positionally in Christ. But who you are at the moment in heavy traffic on the M3 or when you stub your toe is not completely Christ-like, is it? And that, you see, is why New Testament ethical teaching is based on who you are in Christ. New New Testament teaching is saying be who you are. Work out your salvation. 
Make your calling and election sure. In other words, keep growing now in this present age into the person that Jesus Christ has already made you positionally. So here's the point. This is the most important sentence in the whole sermon. As a Christian, you are already holy and not yet holy and becoming holy. And the kingdom of God is already here. It is not yet here and it's getting here. And friends, until we understand those sequences, we will not understand how the gospel works and how the gospel of the kingdom works. But you see, that is what the announcement from heaven means in verse 15 of our passage this morning. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Now, if that is the case, the great question is, how on earth do we respond? Well, let's look at the reaction of the 24 elders in verse 16. Because, you see, they show us what it means to be in the kingdom under the kingship of Jesus. Now, for those of you who weren't with us, let me just remind you that the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. In other words, they represent the people of God in every age. And these are the people who are living out their whole lives centred on the truth that Jesus reigns. So in verse 16, as soon as they hear the reign of Jesus proclaimed, What is the first thing that they do? They fall down and worship. They are literally floored by the wonder of the truth that Jesus reigns forever and ever. And their lives are being shaped by that magnificent truth. Now, will you please notice, this is really important, that this is not happening at the end of the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. It is happening in the church age when the church is preaching the gospel but when the church is also being persecuted and when it sometimes appears to be defeated and utterly irrelevant. Uh, Please remember that when you're planting this church in Ghana you'll need to know this. And yet in spite of that, the 24 elders fall down together and agree on the truth of what has been said. And together they confess that this truth, Jesus reigning, is at the centre of their lives. And they gladly worship Jesus as their king. Now friends, this is what church is all about, or at least ought to be about. It's about hearing God's truth. It's about remembering Jesus' kingship in a world that hasn't recognised it yet. And it's about helping one another to shape our lives around it. Praying for one another. Allowing the Holy Spirit to change the way that we look 
to the people outside church. So can I say that an excellent exercise for us all to be doing during Advent is to find a quiet moment during the week and ask ourselves, how is my life shaped by the fact that Jesus reigns forever? Is it the starting point for all my decisions? Uh, Do the things that I say and do in my personal relationships, do those relationships reflect the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord? Eugene Peterson is extremely helpful on this. He's he's a great writer, isn't he? Very creative, very imaginative thinker. And uh, there's a place in one of his writings where he describes a life that is not centred on Jesus Christ. And he compares it to a vast shopping mall, which of course is a rather helpful analogy at Christmas time, isn't it? He says this, quote, People who do not worship Jesus are living spiritually in a vast shopping mall where they go from shop to shop, spending enormous amounts of energy and making endless trips to meet first this need and then that appetite, this whim and that fancy. And life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. End quote. It's rather good, isn't it? Now that is the life, you see, where Jesus is not king. Can I say, friends, that everybody is searching for a centre to life. People are searching for a reality that's bigger than themselves, bigger than their daily experience, a reality that is truly and lastingly satisfying. The 24 elders have found it, and the first thing they do is bow down and worship. And that leads to the second response, because not only do the 24 elders worship, but they are also, notice this, deeply thankful. Verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And it's saying to us that there is tremendous gratitude in heaven because the Lord has begun to take over the kingdom of the world. And it seems as though this is something that the 24 elders have been longing for. And what do they do? They sing about it. It's a wonderful thing for them to see God begin to take over the kingdom of the world. And so again we're seeing that the reign of Jesus shapes speech and it shapes our thought. Now can I say that that is a huge challenge for us because in my experience we Christian people very easily give way to complaining. Isn't that right? Uh, Even though we've got lots and lots to be thankful for, we are sometimes so easily critical of other people, critical of the church. And when that happens, the truth is we are forgetting the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. At one uh, particular conference, I read that the leaders foresaw that this might be a problem during their days together. So at the very beginning, they addressed all the delegates and they said, for every single critical remark you make, 
you have to make ten remarks that are positive. You have to talk about ten things that you are grateful for, things that you think are really terrific. And apparently they not only reduced the amount of complaining and criticism dramatically, but they got through the programme in half the time. There's a lesson there for everybody, isn't there? You see, gratitude is the mark of someone who knows the rule of God. And thankfulness comes by not only hearing about God's work of salvation in the world, but also noticing God's work of salvation and transformation in one another. Isn't that right? And so thirdly and finally, not only do the 24 elders express their thanks to God, not only are they flawed and undone by the wonder of the truth of his reign, and they worship him, but, uh, and this was fascinating for me, they are crystal clear about judgment. Look at verse 18. The nations were angry, that's a quote from Psalm 2, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. It's very interesting that you have there two sides. There are two sides to God's judgment. There is praise there for God's people, and at the same time there is the destruction of everything that rages against God. And again, this is extremely helpful for us during Advent. Because Advent is a time when we think about the judgment that will come with the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's a time for us to, as it were, refocus the eyes of our hearts. And one of the ways that Advent does that is by reminding us that when he comes again, King Jesus is going to reveal everything. So all the things that are of God and are pleasing to him and all the things that are opposed to him, all those things are going to be made clear. I think that's very helpful because the distinction is not always clear in our world today. The 24 elders know this. Everything that rages against God will be judged. Everything that is of God and pleases him will be praised. Now that is something we Christians need to be really clear about. All that is done for God in this life will be made known. God will praise us for it. And can I say that as Christmas approaches, we ought to be living for that reward. We ought to be striving for what is praiseworthy in God's sight. To be, to be ambitious for his kingdom. And all those people who serve God like that, whether it's in a public way or quietly behind the scenes will receive God's reward and God's reward will be infinitely greater, infinitely more wonderful than any of us can possibly imagine. But also because we know that everything that is opposed to God will be destroyed, God gives us a burden, doesn't he? He gives us a concern about the eternal destinies of those people around us who don't know him 
And we pray for one another as we take that courageous step of going to speak to people about Jesus. Uh, If you like, the, the reality of judgment gives us what I would call a calm urgency. It motivates us to be about the work of the kingdom. Now, nearly finished the closing verse. Verse 19 brings everything together. Now, this is the fascinating bit. Because what it's saying is that because Jesus is king, the way to God is open. That's what it says at the beginning of the verse. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And here it is. For the only time in the book of Revelation, we see the ark of the covenant. Now friends, listen to this. The appearance of the Ark of the Covenant here, along with the seventh trumpet in verse 15, takes us all the way back to Jericho. Do you remember in the book of Joshua that Israel marched around the walls of Jericho carrying the Ark, followed by the seven trumpets? What were they doing? They were declaring God's judgment and God's victory. And, friends, on that great occasion, God's decisive judgment and his glorious victory were unmistakable. There were no atheists at Jericho. When the walls came tumbling down, nobody was saying to the people of God, well, that's just your opinion. So the ark here, you see, represents not just God's judgment of his enemies, but it also represents God's powerful presence with his people. And from earliest days, Israel were looking forward to a reappearance of God's presence in the midst of his people, which was what the ark originally signified. And of course, that is the message of Christmas isn't it? And part of the genius of Handel is that in his music the words of verse 15 are echoed over and over and over again and he will reign forever and ever. Go and listen to it. And it is my prayer that these words will echo in our hearts and minds this Christmas as we share the good news of Jesus with those who need to hear it before it is too late. Let's pray. (coughs) Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has already brought your eternal kingdom into the darkness of our fallen and broken world. Thank you that Jesus has already begun to reign and that he will reign forever and ever and that one day all opposition and evil will be fully and finally swept away. 
Father, this Christmas give us opportunities to speak about Jesus to those who don't yet know you. Help us to do it wisely, clearly and perseveringly. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.